This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett, and on today's show, we've got a bunch of great topics. Number one, uh, GE choosing Veolia to recycle turbine blades. It's actually a really interesting story about uh, the way they intend to use that in uh, cement mix. Um, an interesting article uh, by the consulting firm Wood McKenzie predicting Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy, Vestas, and GE, and how they'll increase their market share over the next decade. Uh, interesting article about Amazon committing to buy uh, 250 megawatts of power from Orsted in Europe. And then in our tech segment, we'll talk a little bit about Timken and their uh, commitment to invest $75 million to increase their uh, capacity in wind energy. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about uh, green ammonia and Vestas backing a wind plant to do that. So, Alan, let's start with uh, GE and Veolia. So obviously, we've talked before about wind turbine blade recycling being a, a big problem because these things are enormous and there's no good way to put a good good place to put them and they don't really just like mold well into the environment i mean we're just burying them at the moment and trying to find places to put them so uh tell us about this article about veolia and and their agreement of of how to process these so ge has been working for the last couple of years on how to recycle the blades because some of those blades are, are starting to come out of service and they've They've been looking at recycling for a while, but obviously it's, you know, where where do you recycle it? Where is it going to go? Where are you going to put it back into the ecosystem? And it it looks like they found a home in the cement industry. And the article is interesting uh, because it was addressing sort of two different pieces to the cement. uh, When you manufacture cement, it kind of goes through a kiln process. So they're using... Mm -hmm. They, 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 but first of all, they grind up the blades, which is a it's a massive problem because when anything that's made out of epoxy and fiberglass is inherently tough, and to grind that into usable chunks or pieces is not easy. So it's like putting it through a, a gigantic paper shredder, but on the on the world's yeah. most largest paper shredder, industrial scale paper shredder, it's got to sit there and just kind of chew at it. Uh, if you ever try to cut, yeah. I, if you ever try to cut uh, fiberglass uh, with like a, a, a grinder or something, it's just, it gets hot and it melts and it gets gooey. So you can't, there's only certain ways to attack that problem. So grinding it up, First, the big problem, but once you get it ground up, now you have all this fiberglass, which is a great additive to any sort of uh, cement mix because it actually prevents the cement from cracking and coming apart because you got this these fiber binders that hold it together. So you have this uh, engineered cement system, which is really useful. But the second part was they must be burning off the, the epoxy, and an epoxy does burn. So in that kiln process, it sounds like they're reducing the amount of coal used to heat these kilns up by burning the fiber, 
the epoxy off is what it sounds like. So kind, I kind mm-hmm. of went about that part of it a little bit. Obviously, obviously GE is full of really bright engineers. They've been that way for a hundred years. Uh, so they, I'm sure they looked at what the emissions out of that are and what the trade-off is, maybe just going through some scrubbers. But that is fascinating because it, was, it wasn't a few episodes ago, maybe 20 episodes ago, we were talking about how they're burying blades in Iowa, basically just digging a hole and dropping them in and putting dirt over them. <laughs> and now, yeah. now, a couple of months later, we're recycling them. Uh, so maybe the, the PR from that burial had something to do with, you know, really kicking this into high drive. Don't you think that had something to do with it, yeah. the PR part of this recycling bit? Yeah, maybe. And of course, well, you've probably seen these shredding videos on YouTube too. There's, I mean, whole channels, I think, where people are just tossing different items into these industrial shredders. I mean, they have these shredders to shred whole cars, <laughs> yeah, right? They, do. they shred engine blocks. They, I mean, so it seems like those are definitely up to the task. But like you said, this is a really long... I mean, you're, you're feeding potentially 100 meters into one of these, right. you know, almost like wood chipper devices. Right. And they can definitely handle it. But you said, like you said, it's a slow process. It, it's got to be, I'm sure, like the right kind of teeth as they grind it up. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that seems like it makes sense. But like you said, there's probably a lot of, and that's really interesting. It says up to 28% of the blade weight would actually provide energy for the chemical reaction that would happen in the kiln. So it does sound like a pretty good fit, which... Yeah, that seems like probably one of the best solutions that we've heard of thus far. Right, and, and we haven't really heard much in Europe on blade recycling. It, it seems like what we have heard has been in the United States, uh, mostly probably because there's a lot of wind turbines in the United States and they're, they're coming of age, so they need to do something with them. But I haven't heard so much in Europe and definitely haven't heard anything in China about it. Uh, so it is good, right? If you can recycle it and use it for an, another highly complex energy-intensive process, fantastic uh so sort of hats off to ge here so moving on uh wood mckenzie the consulting firm i know they're uh they own uh greentechmedia.com um they put out an article that says the top three turbine oems are poised to you know really boost their market share between now and 2029 so potentially going from 43 percent in 2019 to 60 percent a decade later in 2029 and that includes vestas siemens gamesa renewable energy and ge so how do you feel about this i mean that's a lot of conjecture (laughs) obviously they have some of the world's brightest consultants but that's a long period of time to to really speculate on you know, market share and, and, and growth and all that for businesses. I, I think so too, especially if you're going to invest. And Dan, you you do investing, so you have a sense of it. Would you invest mm-hmm. in something like that, that, that had a predictive uh, return 10 years out? I, I don't think that I would. It's just too much risk. I mean, I just... It just, I just don't know that we know what the world looks like in 2020 and 2025 right. even. I mean, <laughs> the world's very different today than it was in 2015, right? So... yeah. Uh, I mean, it seems like obviously these projects have a longer trend, right? Like we talk about some of these new wind projects being built and they're not even going to be in, you know, complete for five, you know, four, three, four, five, six, seven right. years in That's some right. cases. Yeah. So I guess you can predict out pretty far as far as like, you know, contracts and and, and, and what they're pro- proposing to do. But just 10 years from now, I just, I, I wouldn't personally have any take any stock in, in what's going to happen 10 years from now. I, I wouldn't either. 
honestly, it just it wouldn't make any sense. Just because if you think about the leadership of any corporation, and all it takes is one significant event, uh, earthquake, fire, you know, one of those, and all that goes to zero. All the predictions go to zero. Well, and also just like Paul Guype was talking about. You know, like there's a lot of technologies that are going to get a lot cheaper in the next five years. I mean, he talks about it's a lot easier to put solar. You know, if you're a homeowner, rather than put a small wind turbine out, it's way easier and way cheaper to put out solar panels. So it's hard to really say in five, even in five years, not even 10 years from now, you know, where battery technology leads us, where, you know, all these different things. I mean, Tesla's done so much for pushing technology, you know, as far as electric storage and all that. I it's just hard to know well, yeah, what, where we're going to be. Think about it this way. What if we were able to develop fusion power in 2025? Mm-hmm. Do we have wind? Not at the scale we do now. We won't. Uh, you know, that's a huge game changer. But we in the in all of the 20th century, think about all the game-changing things that happened from flying to uh, having uh, – running water in homes and sanitation and automobiles and all and television and radio and all those different things that, that uh, no one would have, would have predicted. Why would that be any different in this century? <laughs> right? I, I don't think that it will be. So it's so hard to predict. And I always, when I always hear a 10 year plan, I always think back to the Soviets five year plans, which never were predictive of anything. And then I think, well, if the Soviets couldn't do five, so we ought to stick to maybe two or three. Maybe two or three years out, we could quasi-predict. Uh, and that's about the limit of prediction, I think. Yeah, and I would tend to agree. And we've talked a bunch of you know, about recently about just different books we've read. Mm-hmm. And like I said, for me, reading a bunch of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's work, and he's constantly talking about predictions and randomness and right. you know the stock market and how people just need to be aware that much more of it is random than they think. Even when they're making seemingly good decisions, like, hey, we thought this was going to happen and it did. He's like, mm, that was a lot more random than you, than you thought it was. And that humans are just really not good at predicting. They're just really not. Exactly. So what value do these predictive articles have? Don't you always wonder that? Like, you, you see, we're in 2050, we're going to be flying in spaceships. You're like, uh, you know, whatever. Okay, so you just kind of just mm-hmm. out of hand discount it, but twenty twenty nine is like okay, it's close enough that I could I can see it, but who's acting on that, right? Because investors like you at sort of the individual level are not reacting to it. Is it is it just a PR play or is it trying to push marketplaces in different you know that, which <laughs> Wall Street does all the time? Yeah. Well, what, what's the point? What's the point of having an article like that? It's like saying. Uh, you're going to know what Apple's producing three years from now. You have no idea. I, I I don't have any idea. I'm probably closer to it than some people, and I have no idea. So what's the what's the point of the article? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and I'm certainly not deep into the the consulting world. And um, I think analysts are just paid to analyze. It seems like in a lot of and just try to make the most. I don't know. Just try to speculate on what the world's going to look like. But I think that that really is more of what it is. It's speculation rather. Yeah. Right. I think it's speculation. And from the engineer standpoint, having watched the analysts come into to a couple of different companies that I've worked for or participated in, their ability to predict the future has not been very good. And when 
the companies have taken the direction of the analysts. It's never really worked out. Now, not say that it doesn't in general work out, but it hasn't worked out in the technology companies I've been involved with. And I always think, who knows more about the characteristics of the companies and the company themselves? If you want to know what's going to happen inside of Pickett Siemens Gamesa uh, two years from now, it's not very hard to find out. I mean, knock on a couple of the engineers' doors over there and know that they have a pretty good idea where the company is going in two years, for sure, way more than an analyst mm-hmm. may, right? I, I, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Apple recently, I mean, we've we've talked about, um, you know, their new computer tech. Apple just released their new MacBooks with the M1 right. chip. Well, they've been developing that. That didn't happen in the last nine months. They've been developing that chip in secret for what? five years probably oh, slowly 15 putting all the processes together yeah. but it's just now to most of the public hey they've got new chips like hey they i mean i think the story broke that they were developing it that this was coming maybe nine months ago a year right. ago so and of course you just i mean if that's the when the public learns you know there's a lot of people who are a lot deeper than that who are aware that that was coming but then there's still but no one that's been going on for a long, a long time, and people just didn't. Well, know. isn't that interesting, though, so. Dan? Because I do think you bring up that you bring up mm-hmm. the right point, which is that obviously all the engineers working at Apple and the and the products they were developing had that technology in it for quite a while, right? And but I didn't read any articles talking about the future uh, computational ability of basically simplified processors in any article in anything in the last five years but in the last month there's been a whole plethora of them where were you a year ago right Mm -hmm. so if if you're analyzing the if you're analyzing the industry how do you miss that one and how does that not get out into the get to the general public's knowledge like hey apple is going to kill it in in a year by apple you didn't hear that maybe maybe i missed it i don't think so i'm pretty tied into apple i didn't hear right, either right so yeah. and now as yeah this is kind of the same thing where intel has been what a massive player in chip production yes. right for the longest time right. and now so if you're to forecast five years ago that intel who's already dominant is going to continue just to like increase their market share which i mean maybe you'd say that maybe you wouldn't but just as a hypothetical um would you have foreseen that Apple was going to come and basically hurt them big time? <laughs> no. Nope. Like, yeah, it's a huge, I mean, Intel's going to be really hurt by this. Oh, massively. So, yeah. It's, you know. it's like predicting that someday you would not have an IBM computer on your desktop because there was a while there mm-hmm. you thought this is going to happen forever or always thinking that Microsoft is going to be the, the, the greatest company in the world. And it just isn't. You know, things come and go, and it's so hard. It's such to predict that. I think is like going to Vegas. You might as well go to Vegas because at least the, the odds are somewhat controlled there, right? You, you kind of mm-hmm. know what you're walking into. You don't know what you're walking into to any business because it, it's and the way to think about a business from the engineering standpoint it is a, it's a living, breathing organism because that's essentially what it is. And there's a lot of ways for those organisms to go wrong. And history has shown us that once big companies get going in a certain direction, it is really, really hard for them to make any sort of adjustments going forward. So if there is new technology or a a smaller company that's more adaptive, the big companies are in trouble. Go to Kmart, go to Sears, go to JCPenney, right? When I was a kid, they they were the places where you would shop and they just controlled the whole marketplace. They're not around anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's... 20 years ago, right? So it doesn't take long for the world to change substantially. And 
and I was that's why I think all these articles you know, take with a grain of salt. Well, and and one more thing about uh, you know not this isn't forecasting. This is a real thing, but. Uh, Amazon has signed a deal with Orsted to buy 250 megawatts from their 900 megawatt uh, Borkum Riftgrund 3 wind farm. And that's going to help our uh, Amazon get get to its target of being 100% renewable by 2030 and net zero by 2040. So obviously wind power is here to stay, right? No one's debating right. that. It's going to be a percentage, even sure. if we got fusion power, right? right? Wind power is still going to be a large Absolutely. chunk. Like no, there's a lot of um, what's the word here? Um, diversity in oh, sure. just where all of our power comes Always from. Has been. So Amazon's committed to buying a, a large chunk of it in the future with a, a PPA with mm -hmm. them. Um, do you feel like this is going to get other companies to follow suit? I mean, Amazon's the big bad wolf in some regards here in the U.S. And of course, it's beloved by a lot of consumers mm -hmm. as well. But I mean, is Apple or are these other big companies going to be doing the same thing? Following, I, I think they're going to try. Anytime you can lock in one of your key constraints to growth, which is power consumption, if you can lock it, lock in long-term agreements on what how much the cost of power is, you you really want to do that. You see the same thing in the airline industry when they can buy long-term contracts on fuel pricing, where they know what that is, even if it's slightly higher than what they really are willing to pay. At least they know what it is. So from an Amazon standpoint, this is a two-part play. One, it's a PR relations thing where they're they're trying to show themselves to be very green and eco-friendly and all that. But you got to think about how they operate their business, right? Their business is trucks and airplanes and and uh, delivery vehicles, and it's going to be drones pretty soon, right? So th they have a lot mm -hmm. of vehicles on the road, and they, now they own or operate a lot of aircraft. They're, they're starting their own airline fleet. That's essentially what they're doing because uh, they had that break with FedEx. So there's just a lot of gyrations. So part of it is somewhat diversionary, like, hey, we want to be green, but at the same time, we're delivering things like UPS every day. Uh, but the I, I think the bigger picture is consistency, knowing what your costs are going into a particular year or a month. And, and energy is one of those big costs for them. It doesn't really seem like it would be. Ever been to an Amazon warehouse? Those places are huge. They, they take a lot of electricity to run and to heat and operate. So controlling that uh, that energy price is really important for them going forward. So it, you know, it's not all benevolent. It's, it's a lot about controlling costs. All right, so moving into our engineering segment here today. First up, we're going to talk about Timken. So obviously, Timken is well known for producing bearings in all sorts of markets, industrial equipment, uh, food and beverage, you know, all these assembly lines. You see, you know, fruit rolling down assembly line. It's probably filled with Timken bearings, yeah. um, automotive, rail, agriculture. I mean, everywhere, like bearings are everywhere. So, but they've recently uh, committed 75 million to improving uh, one of their lead certified factories in China. They're going to scale up production capacity at, at their sites in China and, and Romania and other places, um, and also consolidate some sites um, into a bigger campus. So, um, this obviously, it seems to certainly make sense uh, to me, right? I mean, wind energy is getting bigger, it's very well accepted. Mm. They're, um, who like why wouldn't companies want Timken bearings in their 
you know, in their nacelles. So how do you feel about this this move for Timken? You, you definitely want to have reliable bearings, which is when then you go to, that's where you're at Timken, right? And one of the, when we had uh, Jordan Hedges on, one of the discussions that he brought up was, hey, bearings in direct drive wind turbines were a problem early on. And so getting mm-hmm. reliability, because that's always, always rotating or should be, I mean, hopefully those bearings are always rotating on some level that you think about the, how long those bearings have to last and how reliable they need to be. Then you, you get narrowed down to the number of suppliers that actually create those things. And yeah. knowing that a significant portion of the wind turbine marketplace is in China and there has been some reductions in tariffs, um, that have happened, and, and which I always think is a very odd thing for China at times. It seems to, the, the way those tariffs work in China are very selective. And not to say they're not selective in the U.S., they totally are. But what they're selective about is odd. And when that, when they, especially when we were talking about Siemens and, and GE and having more market share, part of that is driven by the opening of China to some level, right? So it seems like there's uh, a big emphasis of drawing some of these wind turbine companies that have massive scale into China because up to, up to now, it's been pretty much a closed marketplace. They've been building their own products in country sort of by themselves. Uh, and now they're trying to bring in some foreign entities to, to, to build larger turbines clearly when you get to a certain point you really need a lot of help because as as like with the ge Halliates and, and all those um wind turbines as they get larger all of a sudden those components that were critical now are super critical so your, your technology it doesn't seem like there's a lot of technology and bearings there's a lot of technology and bearings there just is yeah right so mm-hmm. you, uh, the metals and the alloys and how they're made and the heat treatment and on the machining that has to go on has to be just right oh for sure right yeah absolutely right. so i think that's part of it and, and we got to wonder too if uh if tim can is also thinking sort of a long, longer term broader market into more of a, a heavy industrial base because there doesn't tend well there's not a huge industrial base in bearings right especially of that size so there's not a lot of competition out there right now there isn't so you just you just yeah you just, you just kind of wonder how they're setting themselves up for the future again <laughs> they're looking two three years ahead and saying hey this this is where we want to go this is where we want to roll the dice in and uh, we see a marketplace there so we're going to dive into it and that that all makes sense uh if you see an opening that's probably that massive you really can't not go through it and so so it's one of those one of those uh interesting little technology pieces to watch yeah absolutely so last item on the docket today um vestas is backing a uh commercial green ammonia plant and of course this is uh overseas in denmark and the goal is that they're going to have both wind power and solar power powering an electrolyzer that's going to produce nitrogen I'm sorry, hydrogen, which will be uh, processed into ammonia. And this is obviously for fertilizers and other yeah. uses. Um, we've, we mentioned this project, which is the power to X. Yes. Um, briefly in a different, in a different podcast mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. So why do we need ammonia? Obviously agriculture, we need it, but are there other uses for it commercially? Fuels, right? It's part of fuels. Uh, uh, fertilizer is a huge industry, by the way. You think of all the, the, yeah. the way we do need food. We do we do need food. <laughs> and the way we concentrate 
our landscape now where we focus on certain parts of the country, at least in the United States, where you're reusing that same soil all the time, it is important to put nutrients back in it. Otherwise, it's impossible to grow crops. So you have to fertilize to get the, the yield that you're looking for. And because the density of crops has gone up so high, if you look at 100 years ago to now, it's the density is way up. Uh, yeah, monocultures are terrible for the environment. They're just terrible for this quality of the soil. Right. So uh, one of the, uh, having grown up in Nebraska, the, the university there and all, all the, a lot of the universities in the United States and the Midwest have agriculture studies, right? And that's part of it is knowing how to treat and maintain the soil. And you'd be surprised how much the state actually monitors how well the soil is doing there. So fertilizers all around the world are important to sustaining life. Uh, and so the, the, usually when they, they make fertilizers, it's part of a combustion process of, of burning natural gas or something. And you take those byproducts off and make them in a fertilizer. So they're trying to come up with a more, um, quote unquote, carbon dioxide neutral s- system where when you can, if you can create hydrogen from electricity, then you can combine it with other molecules and make these chains. Because it wasn't just on the ammonia side uh, where the power to X uh, was discussing, because Airbus was also talking about using uh, the same sort of system to create aircraft fuel. Uh, basically, they're going to take all the they're going to take all the molecules uh, cleanly from the atmosphere from yeah from the atmosphere, and then combine them in the right chain to make fuel molecules, which they could burn in a jet engine. So this is not really any different. It's the same sort of process where you're using renewable energies to pull the carbon, the oxygen, the hydrogen, the nitrogen from the air, and make these molecules, and then go use it in trucks and vehicles and everything else so uh, it's one of those building blocks the question is how efficient is that process and is it um so there's two parts there's two parts to sort of uh reducing emissions and carbon dioxide in the air and all that one one is are you pulling using putting less carbon dioxide in the air checkpoint one checkpoint two is all those all those processes take up energy energy is heat you're putting more heat into the atmosphere when you don't do mm-hmm. it that way. So it's a balance of carbon dioxide creation versus heat. And heat's going to go somewhere, right? So it's not, the, it's not the simplest engineering problem in the world, to say the least. All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.